So we're in our second message, Deep and Wide. Why the title? Well, uh, we believe that there is more to church than just numbers. We're not here just for bodies, bucks, and buildings. You can be a, a mile wide and an inch deep in terms of church. So we believe that there's a healthy growth, and that means that we pour into people, we disciple, we seek to encourage with the Word of God so that people can grow deep and their faith can be long-lasting and persevere through trials. But we also believe that the wide part is important too, deep and wide, that we'd be expansive. The reason that we want to see the ministry expand is because each and every person is important to God, right? We, we care about each and every person in our community and, and beyond. We've been looking at just an unbelievable story in the book of Acts as Jew and Gentile were coming to Christ. There were economic issues involved, there were race issues involved, and we've hit that hard these last few weeks, and the reason is because the, the text talks about the Jewish Christians purposely not talking to the Gentiles of a different race. I mean, they were, they were prejudiced in how they were approaching this, and there were others who got that the ministry, the gospel was expansive, and they were breaking beyond those boundaries and, and talking to people, uh, not necessarily inside their circle. And so, just a great, great challenge to us all in this. So we notice this sharp contrast uh, after the martyrdom of Stephen and how when the Jews spread out from Jerusalem trying to escape the persecution, how they were approaching people. Some Jewish Christians, in verse 19, it says they were speaking to no one except the Jews. You know, our four no more. You know, if they're not like us, we're not going to go talk to them, essentially. And then there were others who were consistent with the heart of the gospel, and they spoke to the Gentile culture, or our passage said the, the Hellenists or the Greeks. Now, both of these sets of people found themselves in Antioch. And this was a bustling city, about a half a million people, and it was a prime target of evangelistic efforts of the early church. And our passage says that as a result of the grace of God, not being limited to just one group, in other words, just one group was saying that, hey, we can't just speak to Jews, we've got to talk to Gentiles as well. All right, the hand of the Lord was upon their efforts. There is something consistent with the heart of God as we reach out to people that are different from us. There's something within the hand of God, the heart of God, as we talk to different races, different people who are not like us, God seems to bless those efforts just like he did right here. A great many people turned to Christ because of this expansive grace. And so I left you with a challenge last week. And what was the challenge? I asked you to go outside your normal circle of friends to engage with somebody, not just say hi, but to engage with somebody of a different class, economic class, to perhaps engage with somebody of a different political persuasion, to engage with somebody of a different race, to engage with somebody of a different religion or of no religion at all. And so what we do is when we extend ourselves in grace, we create these opportunities for God to do a great work. Our point from this was that when we extend ourselves in grace, we widen the audience of the gospel. So this is a part of the wide in our deep and wide. Regardless of race 
or background, every person has to repent of their sin and acknowledge their need of a Savior, and that offer is good for anybody, and in this case, in Acts 11, not just Jews. So if I don't acknowledge my need of a Savior, if I don't acknowledge my problem with sin, then there's no salvation. But that salvation message, that is available for anyone, all right? So the gospel, it spread like wildfire as a result of this expansive grace. People who understood this inclusive nature of the gospel. See, the reason we have to be reminded, not just in reading the story like that, and the reason we have to be reminded even in preaching like this, is because we're all prone to just hang with our own kind. We all are. And so we all need a friendly nudge. We all need a reminder that if the body of Christ is going to be, I think, exhibit the real heart of God, it's going to have great diversity to be a part of that. That's why it's been on my heart these last several years when we were part of this unity project of Springfield where we, we get the black and white churches together and we see the, some of the black leaders in our community washing the feet of a, or, or of a white police chief. And you see how the, 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 the profound effect of that upon the, the police and upon the community. These are, these are significant things. But uh, we've got, hopefully, much more to do uh, in that area in terms of building relationships. But this is, I think, a part of the heart of God. Uh, we, we came upon an action that not only widened the church, but that deepened the church in verses 22 and 23. It tells us that the Jerusalem church sent Barnabas to go find out what was going on in Antioch. The text tells us that Barnabas was pleased with what he saw. He saw a living demonstration of the grace of God in action. He encouraged these uh, Christians, these Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians in Antioch to continue in the same vein to remain faithful to the Lord and steadfast in purpose. And so what we see from this is that every church can benefit from leadership that, that directs and confirms where possible that their labor is consistent with their mission and vision that God has given to them. And this is what Barnabas supplied to the church at Antioch. I'm sure having a man like Barnabas, and we, we, we're going to read more of his character, and we know that you know, he was a great encourager, this, this had to have really lifted their spirits. So verse 22 and 23, it tells us what Barnabas did, and verse 24 tells us who Barnabas was. We get a glimpse of his character. We could say it this way, verses 22 and 23 set the direction or vision of the church at Antioch, and verse 24 hints at what kind of culture was in the church at Antioch because it was under the leadership of Barnabas, Barnabas, who stayed there a year. And so he provided this steady and graceful hand. You might say that he set the right tone for the church. Our principle is this, is that a church grows deep when the leaders and congregation enjoy a culture of good relational and spiritual health. So if you're to measure the health of a church, would you say, well, oh, that church built new buildings. That must be really healthy. Or look how big that church is. That must be really healthy. Well, again, those are two different things, right? 
Nothing wrong with, you know, buildings. But that doesn't necessarily equate to good spiritual and relational health. I mean, to me, if you have a church where the, the staff are bickering, uh, where, the, where the elders are divided, and where the, 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 the pastor is a dictator, that's not a healthy church. And so what we're trying to strive for is deep and wide, deep and wide. And to do that, you certainly need leaders, and you need leaders who can model the kinds of things that uh, God is wanting to have in the church. And so this idea of, of mentoring, modeling is awfully important, and that's certainly what, what Barnabas did. Take a look at this video that uh, talks about this. Well, when it comes to the church, at the heart of our community is a charge to mold people. And we're unapologetic about that. The Bible gives different terms for that. It talks about edifying. It talks about making disciples. It talks about teaching. It's not just the, the dissemination of information, right? But it involves something much deeper, more profound. Uh, we cannot give to somebody what we do not possess. And when it comes to influencing the character of another person, our ability to do so hinges upon our own character, right? So we're told in verse 24 the kind of person that Barnabas was. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Who we are and how we relate can either sabotage or assist us in accomplishing our mission or vision. I mean, the fact is, is that when it comes to ministry, one can get so focused on systems or on processes that we neglect character, right? I mean, the greatest asset any leader has is the quality of relationships they have within an organization. And if people don't want to follow you as a leader because your relationships are unhealthy, then how does a leader lead? Well, normally it just has to be authoritarian. He leads by fear, essentially. And many of you can attest to that probably with some of the jobs that you have or have had. An organization suffers. Now, verse 20 and 21 talk about the message of the gospel being inclusive, and that was effective in bringing many to Christ. Verse 24 talks about the character of the messenger, and that also was effective. Listen to what the verse says, 24. A great many people were added to the Lord. And so both issues, deep and wide, impacted the extent of the gospel. A church can often get too pro, uh, pragmatic. You know, just talk about church growth or, or programs. You know, the, the church growth tools or, or systems. Nothing wrong with that. But the idea is if you just do that, you're going to be a success. Well, not necessarily so. Verse 24 tells us of a much healthier approach. Attend to matters of the heart. Competency without character. That's a formula for ministry disaster, is it not? I gave to the pastors in my accountability group a message to listen to by another pastor who lost his ministry. Why? Well, because he ignored the warning signs in his life. Bursts of anger that were constantly occurring. The way he was 
handling his staff, you know, with authoritarian, kind of dictator ways of, of operating. His moral life was compromised. Those things, if we ignore, all right, they're going to come back to bite us. We have to address these issues of the heart, the character. And Barnabas, it tells us here, was described as a, a good man. That's a description of character. He didn't present one thing in public and another thing in private. I want you to notice also that he was full of the Holy Spirit. Now, because we live in Springfield, we're going to have to define that, all right? All right? And we can't force a meaning that is not in the text. And what does the context say? It says he was a good man. He was effective in ministry, right? Apparently, he related well. He led well. And he was full of the Holy Spirit and how he did those things. There is no mention here of his posture in worship. There's no mention here of tongues, but he was full of the Spirit. So being filled with the Spirit has a lot more to do with how we're functioning in our lives, in our relationships, than it does with anything else. Now, people who bandy about claims of being filled with the Spirit, and then they relate in unhealthy ways, you know, they gossip, they cause disunity, they certainly may be filled with something, but it's not the Holy Spirit. Barnabas was also a man of faith. Faith can have a variety of applications, but certainly it includes a man of prayer. I think that's often synonymous when the Bible talks about faith, a, a person who prays and prays big. And a person who has faith, they believe God to do big things. Also, faith is often connected with endurance or perseverance. A person who has faith can go through tough times in life and they realize that God is still God, God still loves me, God is still in control. That's a person of faith. So he was a a man of faith. He was filled with the spirits. His goodness of character, his spirit-filled life, his faith, these were noticeable to others around him, and this added to his effectiveness in ministry and in the dissemination of the gospel message. Verse 25 says, So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Paul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Here's another principle for us. A church that grows wide will always have an eye toward multiplying the ministry with others. I mean, you have to have people who are given the chance to grow and mature and participate. We have to understand that ministry cannot just be, you know, left to the seminary graduates, you know. We can't just expect experts to be the ones who participate in ministry. And that's often the idea that some ministries have. I remember when I was in my 20s, uh, I had graduated from Bible college, and I had not been to my home church in, in quite a while. Janet and I, we moved from Ohio, and then we lived in St. Louis, and we lived in Denver. And the church had gotten a new pastor, and I had grown up in this church. And I went back to the church, and I was looking for a job in ministry. The pastor that I was with before that, you know, we were close friends, a youth pastor, and I knew a lot of the people on staff. I couldn't even get in to talk to the pastor. And you know why? 
because I didn't have my master's degree. And this was my home church. And I'm like, what? I couldn't believe it. Couldn't even, couldn't even get the time of day, couldn't even get a conversation because I didn't have a degree after my name. That, there was something wrong with that to me, especially for somebody that, that you know, or at least the, the church certainly knew. So we have to be a church, I think, that, that gives people an opportunity to participate and minister. Uh, it was one of D.L. Moody's policies that every, every time a person came to Christ, they would immediately be given a task to do. He was uh, famous for when people would come to Christ. He'd have them do just simple things like maybe pass out hymnals or, or straighten the chairs or anything to keep the person busy in ministry. And Moody said this. He said, it's better to put 10 men to work than to do the work of 10 men. And many of Moody's assistants went on further in ministry because, you know, he knew how to, how to train them and have them assist in this way. Now, the church that I grew up in, though, despite the problems I talked about previous for that, they were very good at giving opportunities for young men and women in ministry. And I can remember when I came to Christ in the ninth grade, I was busy throughout the church and in the youth group. In high school, I was preaching in the church, and this was a church of over a thousand people, and that was rather intimidating. But those were opportunities to be trained and, and opportunities with going out on short-term mission trips and starting a Bible study in my high school and being tutored in, in, in how to do that. And so plenty of mistakes. And Lord knows I'd never want to listen to that sermon that I preached in high school to them, all right? But, but God used all of that. And those opportunities were a part of learning and training. And training is not in sanitized classrooms, but it's out in real life, right? I mean, look at Paul and Barnabas. We know later that there was a run-in that those two had because of John Mark and Paul wanted to basically drop John Mark from the picture. Barnabas wanted to continue to use him. That was a conflict. That was an issue. But I'm sure God used that in helping them, in training them, in learning how to do ministry. The point is, we are trained when the issues come up, when conflicts arise. And it's often messy. But God uses that in our development. So we're to... We're to give away ministry as much as possible and give people an opportunity to participate. Our next principle is that a church grows deep when it makes a commitment to honor and teach the Word of God for spiritual maturity. If we look at our passage, it tells us that Paul and Barnabas taught for a year. This implies a, a plan, a commitment. So, Barnabas went to Tarsus, and he got Saul to come and help him multiply the ministry, training Saul in that ministry. But what was one of the things that they did? Well, they taught for a year. I guarantee you it was more than just once a week. They lived there. They spent time with the church. They poured over the scriptures together. They were helping them connect the dots on how the scripture applied to real life, I'm sure this was a thorough job of a year with the Christians there in Antioch. The point is this. 
is that spiritual maturity is a process where we submit to the will of God that's informed by Scripture, and this leads to our transformation. I mean, over time, the Spirit of God trains our minds and our hearts, right, to conform us to the image of Christ. That's why it says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, we're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. In other words, every decision we make that's informed by the Word of God, we're being transformed. We're growing. That's one glory to the next. Spiritual maturity is not guaranteed just because you get older. I mean, there are a lot of immature believers who've been believers for a long time, but they've not grown because they've neglected the Scriptures. In fact, in Hebrews 5, 11 through 14, we read about believers who should have been learning and teaching the deep truths of Scriptures, but instead they were stuck in an infant stage, unwilling to take in instruction. Knowledge alone does not bring maturity. The Corinthians were knee-deep in biblical knowledge, but it was a church that was immature because they were not applying it. They were not taking it in and using it. Spiritual experiences alone do not give maturity. You know, you can go to a camp, you go to a retreat, you're on a spiritual high. But those things don't necessarily bring maturity. Maturity is step-by-step applying the Word of God to my life. And over the long haul, maturity is given to us by God. It's a process. There's no such thing as a spiritually mature believer who neglects the Word of God. You want to mature? You dig into the Word of God. Listen to the instruction for a young pastor in 1 Timothy 4.6. If you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good servant of Jesus Christ, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. I'm sure you're probably saying, what? Doctrine? That has nothing to do with maturity. I beg to differ. Uh, Doctrine is simply another word translated, it's uh, it's translated teaching in in other passages. It's essentially the application. Uh, It's making a principle out of what I've learned in the Scripture. So there's good doctrine, there's beautiful doctrine, excellent doctrine, and then there's bad doctrine, bad principles, ideas that I get on how to live life that are not consistent with Scripture. There's good doctrine that should encourage us. Romans 15, 4 says, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. So it feeds our soul. It, it gives us hope. 2 Timothy 3.10 adds, You, however, have followed you know, my teaching or doctrine, my conduct. And Paul says it's, it's my doctrine or teaching. In other words, he has personalized it. He's, he has you know, created these convictions that he holds to based on what the Word of God says. That's That's doctrine. It's based on the scripture. A set of principles that we we base our life upon. What Paul is saying then is that a a good minister 
develops these convictions. In other words, we, we have a, we've thought this through a biblical filter. That's sound doctrine. But then there's, like I said, bad doctrine. 2 Timothy 4.3, for the time will come when they will not endure sound or good doctrine. But after their own lusts, shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. So that's doing what you want and then creating a doctrine to fit that. What the Bible teaches us is that we, we adjust our behavior to fit the doctrine. You know, a person might say, you know, God wants me to be happy. If I had a dime for every time I heard this, I would be a rich minister, right? And it's usually in the context of doing something outside the scripture. God does not want us to be unhappy. And so therefore, that, they think, gives them the go-ahead to get into some kind of immoral relationship. We have to be very careful of developing these ideas that cannot pass through a biblical filter. That's bad doctrine. So again, sound doctrine molds behavior out of a solid biblical filter. Unsound doctrine molds doctrine to fit the behavior. Paul and Barnabas were successful in their teaching. We know this because after a year, it says, people started calling them Christians. First time they used the term party of followers of Christ. So their teaching accomplished the intended result. Now, the fact is we could have so-called Christians that maybe could be called cultural followers, or these are good world theorists, or they're a good self-made philosopher. Notice, it has nothing to do with Christ, but by their actions, by their life, by their words, they prove that they are ardent supporters of self. They know how to align with the culture or the world system. But the believers in Antioch were taught in such a way that they connected the dots to their actions and thinking. And the fact is, some folks don't get that connection. They don't understand the need to be consistent. I was amused by a woman who taught at MIT. Actually, she was the dean of admissions. 92% of students applying at MIT have SAT scores above 700. And a key player in getting in is impressing the dean of admissions. And in this case, this is a story about Mary Lee Jones. Apparently, extremely qualified as the dean of admissions, because she said that she earned three different degrees. In reality, she never graduated from college. And yet she had on her resume three different degrees. And when administrators at MIT got suspicious, all they had to do was make three very short phone calls and find out. Two schools she never attended. Another one she took a few classes, never graduated. Got an award, by the way, is this prestigious award is one of the best administrators at MIT. And then she had to get fired. 
Because you know, who she said she was was not who she was. Couldn't connect the dots. Rebecca Sabke, an undergraduate admissions counselor, Ivy League school, she reads over 2,000 college applications every year. She writes, the applicants are always intellectually curious and talented. They climb mountains, head extracurricular clubs, and develop new technologies. They're the next generation's leaders. Their accomplishments stack up quickly. So she's on the lookout for you know, particular characteristics in the applications, and they always you know, write these narratives, and they'll, they'll have references usually from qualified people in academics to give some glowing remarks about the prospective student. Well, one kind of rose to the top of the stack, at least in, in this admission counselor's mind. Why? Because she'd never seen this before. A student gave a recommendation by a school janitor. A school janitor. This letter was completely different. The custodian wrote that he was compelled to support the student's candidacy because of his thoughtfulness. This is what he wrote. This young man was the only person in the school who knew the names of every member of the janitorial staff. He turned off lights and empty rooms, consistently thanked the hallway monitor each morning and tidied up after his peers, even if nobody was watching. This student, the custodian wrote, had a refreshing respect for every person at the school, regardless of position, popularity, or clout. Over 15 years and 30,000 applications in my admissions career, I had never seen a recommendation from a school custodian. And it gave us a window into the student's life in the moments when nothing counted, and that student was admitted by unanimous consent of the admissions committee. Connected the dots of who he was with how he was living life. See, when, when we connect the dots between the Word of God and how we sweep floors and how we relate to our spouse and how we conduct ourselves in school and how we relate to people different from us, then we're moving in the right direction. Then we are maturing spiritually. Connect the dots. Let's pray.